Five Mistakes in Safeguarding Adults. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. In this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio with Mark Caulfield. Mark is a social worker with over a decade of experience post-qualifying in respect of working with adults in community, acute and forensic settings. His main areas of expertise are surrounding mental capacity, mental health and safeguarding adults. He undertakes independent assessments for the courts, tribunals, public bodies and private clients relating to adults with diagnosis of learning disabilities, autism spectrum conditions and mental disorders. And I've had the pleasure of working with Mark in a number of cases. And in fact, many of you will know the case of W versus BU, a case about predatory marriage that was before Mrs. Justice Roberts last year. And Mark was one of the independent professionals involved in that case. And today, Mark is going to tell us all about five mistakes of safeguarding adults. So, Mark five common mistakes in respect of safeguarding adults. Where do we start our countdown? Well, I think number one, I put a make, making safeguarding personal. So my experience in safeguarding is relatively far-reaching, but I'm going to talk largely about experience I've had as a safeguarding manager where I've managed people um, and examples of where people haven't got making safeguarding personal right. So making safeguarding personal has been around for a long time. It followed on the back of research from ADAS, as most people watching this will probably know. Um, and there is a Making Safeguarding Personal Outcomes Framework. When the most recent one was published in January 2020, which supports practitioners to look at how we can make safeguarding personal. And the, the, the slogan that everyone will probably be aware of is no decision about me without me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think historically, certainly when I qualified in 2008, um, there was a sense that safeguarding inquiries and the way we safeguarded people was to essentially keep them safe. And that was it. And there was less basis upon upholding people's rights and finding out what people's, um, what people wanted the outcome of any safeguarding inquiries or intervention of the state to be. Yeah. Um, So I'll just give one example, which I think illustrates this point when I managed to a safeguarding team from a practitioner who took an inquiry, took a, took a safeguarding referral, contacted several different people, spent about two hours making inquiries about whether this abuse had occurred and did preliminary fact finding and then mm. came to me for advice. And I said, well, what does the person want? I don't know, not spoken to them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he spent kind of two and a half hours essentially just chasing their tail and then went to the person and the person said, oh no, this was, this was something about nothing. Uh, I basically made this complaint because I wanted to leave the home, but I'm home now. I'm not bothered about it. Um, it didn't really happen. I was just trying to force their hand to they do something. Um, and, you know, I don't want you to do anything about it. Um, no concerns around his capacity and it could have been closed probably within 10 to 15 minutes. There was no wider risk to any other residents or other people. Um, and I think people are still stuck in that. I still come across instances where people are not, you know, the, the first port of call should be the person. What does the person yes. want the outcome to be? And I think people are still fixated on an investigative 
based model of safeguarding rather than an outcome based model of safeguarding. So is it is it just an investigative model or is it also a sort of paternalistic model that we were perhaps used to before the CARE Act came into force? I think certainly. I think it's probably a mixture of both. I, I think there is probably an element that we need to keep people safe rather than we need to uphold people's rights. And I think that feels very uncomfortable. So when I deliver training, to exam- for example, to care homes, and I deliver safeguarding training, I say, I'm not going to train you on how to, main- to keep people safe. I'm going to train you on how to uphold people's rights. That's safeguarding. Locking people up and trying to keep people safe at all costs is not safeguarding. Um, and for lots of people, especially when people are caring for very vulnerable people, for example, nursing homes that specialise in dementia, that, that that is a bit of an unusual concept for them because I think it's driven into them that their main priority is to keep the residents safe. Um, now, hopefully, that would align with upholding their rights. But as we know, it doesn't always. And, and certainly when we're working with less vulnerable people, it often won't do. Often upholding people's rights won't necessarily result in people being safer. In respect of that, then, there's a degree of making sure that a person's autonomy is protected and they've got choices that they're able to make and that their wishes and feelings are followed. So I'm a bit intrigued. Does the Mental Capacity Act feature in your top five mistakes? It does. Number two. Ah, Shocker. Number two. (laughs) Go on then. Uh, I think it will come as no surprise is that you and I still come across instances where people Mm. are not applying the principles correctly. They're not adhering to Section 4 of the Mental Capacity Act in respect to best interests. Yes. Um, and they're not making timely applications to the court of protection or ensuring that arrangements are in place to um, when people are deprived of their liberty. Um, and obviously this happens routinely, so we're still not getting that right. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is, um, in all honesty, <laughs> because we've had enough time. We're well, talking. We've had a while now, we're still not doing it properly. <laughs> we're 13 years since it came into... Uh, so, sorry, no, 15 years, isn't it? Um, so, and we're still not getting it right. Um, I, I'm not saying what the answer is. I, certainly, I, I think training is a key aspect of getting it right. I, I think certainly what what we see, I think, a lot of the time is people who think they have a greater degree of knowledge than they possibly do and okay. fudging the Metal Capacity Act. So, um, again, coming back to an example when I've managed a team before where an allegation came in of potential sexual abuse in a care home, for a elderly woman who was considered very vulnerable and there were concerns about her capacity to make decisions around sex. Um, social worker gets the backpack on. I'll go and sort it. I'll go and speak to the woman. Okay, what yeah. are you going to do? Well, I'm going to assess her capacity around what? Sex, brilliant. What's the, what's the salient information? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay, well, you can't do a capacity assessment without knowing the salient information you're going to assess. And I see that a lot of the time um, in capacity assessments and even from independent experts where it's not clearly set out what the salient information is that they're assessing against. Well, and sometimes Um, not even what decision they're assessing, to be entirely (laughs) honest with you. I I can't believe that in 2022, I still see assessments that say P lacks capacity, full stop. It's Mm. it's astonishing. Mm. I'm not certain how we overcome it. There's training out there. There's good quality training out there. I think certainly that helps. Um, But I think you need people who are in positions, management positions and senior positions 
to be filtering down hopefully the knowledge they've got in respect of the MCA but as you've probably seen that's not always there either. One thing that bothers me at the moment and is my hobby horse and I'm, I'm sorry if you've already heard me speak about this people who are listening but I think the presumption of capacity is being used in the wrong way in the fact that I think that a lot of the time people rely on the presumption of capacity as a means of not doing anything. Mm. We can't we can't engage with that person. Uh, we can't assess their capacity, presumption of capacity. They're making a terrible decision for themselves. Uh, nothing to do with us, Gov. Seems to be the attitude or, or the defence that we find in, in some particular cases. And what's your experience been in respect of that? I certainly still come across it. I, I, I do come across it a little bit less frequently, but certainly mm. I still do. Um, I did an inquest last year for a tragic case of a man who, for for all intents and purposes, had been abandoned on the basis of the presumption of capacity around medical treatment. Um, mm. but even though there was very conflicting views around whether he had capacity, so there were various assessments, some indicating that he had capacity, some indicating that he lacked capacity. Either way, the seriousness of the decision probably merited it going before the court's protection anyway, because mm. the, 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 the outcome of him not accepting treatment would be that he would likely die. So it wasn't a decision that should have been taken by local clinicians on the ground, yeah. <laughs> notwithstanding the concerns around capacity. Um, I know that the Human Rights Commission in 2019 expressed a lots of concerns around these cases um, in terms of, um, so the human rights inquiry, um, the local government inquiry, um, ex- expressed a lot of concerns around these cases where people are just assessed as having capacity without any real robust assessment taking place, mm. placing themselves at significant risk at harm and also almost local authorities being able to take a step back from that and say, well, they're making an unwise decision. Well, are they? Is there coercion? Is there control? Is there potential for the use of the inherent jurisdiction, for example? Um, th- th- there's no real complex investigation around that in a lot of cases I come across. Um, and often it results in people dying or suffering significant harm. Is that because of a fault in the way in which the legislation's put together? Or do you think it's a fault in sort of culture? Uh, and the reason I say this is because I've always thought it's perhaps a bit peculiar having almost the CARE Act in one piece of legislation the Mental Capacity Act and another piece of legislation, then obviously the Mental Health Act um, and other forms of legislation elsewhere. And I wonder sometimes if it's because people get into their head, today I'm in Mental Capacity Act mode, today I'm in Care Act mode, today I'm in Mental Health Act mode, and there's not always the bridging between them. I think you're kinder than I am. I think... uh, (laughs) No one ever said that. (laughs) (laughs) I I think practitioners should be able to marry all those worlds together. I agree that I think it's particularly complex. I think, for example, the inherent jurisdiction, you know, it's rare that I come across training, even with very experienced practitioners, either nurses, OTs, social workers, who've got a really good understanding of the inherent jurisdiction Mm. and could give an example of where it may be used. Um, That's really interesting. It's rare that I come across that. Um, Sometimes I come across really good knowledge around mental capacity, but it's very rare that, for example, I come across inherent jurisdiction best practice, good knowledge in in training that I deliver? I suppose when I'm training, one of the things that always strikes me in respect to the Mental Capacity Act is that you train someone on the Mental Capacity Act and the yang to the ying of the Mental Capacity Act is the inherent jurisdiction. It's saying, well, if if someone is subject to coercive control or constraint and is unable to make a decision because of that external factor rather than the disorder of the functioning of the mind and brain, you're in a different jurisdiction. But 
people seem shocked when I tell, when I'm training. People people are literally shocked that there is such a thing as the inherent jurisdiction, and I think that's I think that's quite sad and also quite concerning, really, um, because the statutes aren't there to deal with every scenario in respect of coercive control. There are bits of legislation which you can use for coercive control, but it, it, it's not a panacea. There's not, there's not a piece of statute that deals with every single scenario that's out there. Mm. So we, we've got safeguarding personal. We've got the Mental Capacity Act. Where do we go next in respect of your five common mistakes? Well, I think it probably leads on from the Metal Capacity Act, but I, I, I was going to put around legal literacy more broadly, which I think we've mm-hmm. we've covered a little bit. Um, but certainly, I, I think that there's often an absence. I think of um, there was there was a there was a comment on LinkedIn last week where people were talking about the names for care act assessments, and, my, and I put most people I meet want to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what the outcome would be. That's my yeah. experience as a practitioner. And yeah. that's certainly what I would want to know if I was in receipt of services. I think the flip side of that is I think because people are so busy, maybe the training isn't the best that they receive, mm-hmm. is that they go into situations with, without understanding what they're going to do and why they're doing it and what the outcome may be. And I think the only way you overcome okay. that really is having a really good understanding of the law and the framework that you're operating in. So, i.e., I'm going to go and complete a Section 9 care, care needs assessment under the Care Act. Um, this person may or may not have capacity under Section 11, and then I make decisions mm-hmm. feeding on from that. So you've got to even just complete a care act assessment, which which often isn't completed by qualified practitioners a lot of the time now, still requires okay. a, a, a depth of understanding around the possible outcomes that may um, come from your intervention. And I think without having a good understanding of the legal framework, you're setting people up to fail and, and practitioners yeah. are setting themselves up to fail, essentially, through their interventions. Um and I come across several cases like this. Um, you know, a classic example is when we're assessing capacity. Um, okay. The amount of times I assess, I complete capacity, mental capacity training, and I say the first thing that you've got to do when you meet the person is tell them what you're doing. Sure. And people go, people go, oh, I never do that. No, because because if, if I say that, they won't speak to me. Or I want to I want to get what their understanding is without them realizing I'm assessing capacity, and I'm like. Oh, this is awful. I mean, that's mad. So, so, people, <laughs> so people turn up surprise capacity assessment. I, yeah. yeah. So they'll just come up for, for an in, they'll just say, we're coming to visit you to have a chat about sex. And okay. they'll talk to them about it, but they won't clearly indicate to the person that they're completing that assessment. In terms of how they're adhering to sex, section 1.3, mm-hmm. God knows. <laughs> in all Wait, honesty. But they're not, are they? I mean, no. in, re- in reality, if you turn up and you try and do a sort of stealth assessment on someone, mm. it, it doesn't fit with the act at all. No, no. I, I, I still see this, I still come, come across this all the time, that people are not aware of... Uh, the, I, I think nuance is too kind a word. <laughs> yeah. The integral components of what you need to do to act lawfully and give people the best or- chance of autonomy. And I'm sure I'm still not certain people are aware of that. Okay, so it, that's the Care Act, that's the Mental Capacity Act. We, we mentioned as well, of course, about the inherent jurisdiction and why there seems to be a complete 
well, not a complete lack of understanding, but there certainly seems to be a trend that people don't feel confident with it, comfortable with it, or know how to invoke it. Just out of interest, when did you find out about the inherent jurisdiction? Who told you about it and when? That sounds a weird question, but do you know? It is a very good question, actually. I was probably <laughs> I was probably qualified for about... I think I heard about it probably when I studied. Um, but in terms of its, it, its use in practice or its potential use in practice, it was probably three years after I was qualified. So I was probably... Well, I was probably working for around three years without probably the best understanding right. of the MCA or the inherent jurisdiction, in all honesty. Um, and probably looking back, I, I, I most certainly made mistakes where things maybe should have gone to the court protection that didn't. Mm. Um, you know, you could argue that as a newly qualified social worker, maybe I should have had better oversight. Um, but really, I probably should have taken more responsibility for my learning. And I think that's, that's probably the case for a lot of practitioners. You see, for me... I, I, I I was discussing this with a colleague the other day. For me, the sort of inherent jurisdiction, the sexual exploitation cases all seem pretty common. They're something I deal with on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. It, you know, I, I can flip between the different jurisdictions. And one of the things that I forget is that actually in a social worker's career, if they're working in a statutory service... They, they may never do an inherent jurisdiction case. Is, is that right? Potentially, yeah. Yeah, it's very... I, I've met people who've been qualified for 20, 30 years and have never um, taken a, um, never done an inherent jurisdiction case. Um, certainly, you know, some areas of practice, you know, when I worked at Rampton, for example, and it's no mm. criticism of any other practitioners at Rampton, lots of people there had worked, for example, 30 years in high secure care. Yeah. So, so in, in terms of their understanding of wider community-based models of either social work or legislation that might be used more regularly within the community, um, there were probably gaps there. And I think people probably get siloed in particular jobs. Mm. Um, You know, it might be a safeguarding team, a specialist safeguarding team, which makes them an expert in safeguarding, but doesn't necessarily make them an expert in, for example, assessing people's care and support needs. Uh, So picking up on that just for a second, actually, while we've got that point, some local authorities have designated safeguarding adults teams. Other local authorities shun that model completely and say, we don't want to do that. Mm. Feels a bit mean to put you on the spot and to ask you which you think is better. But Mm. I suppose, why do they do it? And what are the sort of advantages and disadvantages of each of the models? I think the advantage is that you get a specialist knowledge around adult safeguarding and hopefully the the different strands of that in terms of the Metal Capacity Act inherent Mm -hmm. jurisdiction Um, And then that knowledge can be disseminated. So people who have been at risk of abuse or neglect get the best possible service, hopefully. And then that knowledge can hopefully be disseminated to wider members of the team. My, My experience is, I think that's a very good model, in all honesty. Where I think it breaks down is that that dissemination of knowledge. So if you have a group of practitioners who are specializing in a particular practice area, of their knowledge is likely to be greater than maybe more generic um, teams. But that knowledge never seems to be shared with those teams in the, in the authorities I've worked in, which is, okay. which is, so I don't see, for me, if you're not going to do that, have everyone doing it, yeah, the safeguarding work and develop everyone's skills together. But I quite like the specialist safeguarding team model. 
personally, probably because okay. I've worked in them before. I think it's a really good opportunity for people to specialise in a particular area and then disseminate that knowledge. But also as well, what I think happens is people become stagnant in those teams. So what you find in those teams, if people mm. have worked in them for 10 years, what okay. I would like to see is more rotation. So what would be great if you've got those specialist teams and then you get social workers coming in for six months, for example, working in those teams and then maybe rotating more. Yeah. But local authorities don't generally do that. That's interesting. So we've got Making Safeguarding Personal, we've got the Mental Capacity Act, we've got Legal Literacy. What else do you think is a common mistake in safeguarding adults? Well, I was just going to put around local bodies, public bodies or local authorities overstepping um, powers that they don't have, basically. So yeah. um, the, the, the most obvious example is the case of Essex County Council versus RF, or affectionately known as Fluffy the Cat. Fluffy the Cat, absolutely. Fluffy the Cat. Um, and hopefully people will know this case who are watching this, but if they don't, was a gentleman in his 90s who was removed from his home, kidnapped essentially mm. from his home, um, who had a cat called Fluffy. And that was the most important thing to him. And was deprived of his liberty unlawfully for 13 months, I think. Yeah. Ian will correct me. I think it was around that time. It was a long time. Um, and we still see this. I worked in a safeguarding team. Um, my last my last statutory job was in a safeguarding team, managing a safeguarding team. And we, we had a couple of kidnappings, you know, and they they appear benevolent on the surface. So, uh, mm. you know, one that looking back would be amusing if it wasn't so horrific was a care home, went to assess someone, the placement provider was saying, we really need this woman out, we can't meet her needs. The care home said, yeah, we can meet her needs, no problem. So the, they, sent right. the, they sent the janitor around the following morning to collect this woman and take her to the new care home. No, no legal framework, no mental capacity assessments have been done, no best interest decisions have been done, no applications to the court had been undertaken, no 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 dolls framework, nothing. Um, and that still happens. I had two cases very similar in the space of around six months in a local authority safeguarding team. So these cases are still happening. People That's are still extraordinary. Being, people are still being deprived of their liberty. People are still being kidnapped from their homes. Um, I, you know, that, that was a relatively small local authority in the north. Um, you know, I imagine the big authorities, they're probably happening once a month. I mean, that's uh, it's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, two things that may may or may not amuse you, may or may not amuse our, our listeners, but the, one of my experiences quite recently was I was delivering training to a large public body. And that public body said to me, well, Ian, we don't do community dolls. So if someone's deprived of their liberty within the community, we don't make a re-ex application. We just let them be deprived of their liberty in the community. We don't have the time to make applications to court. And I, I was just, I was just gobsmacked. Like, w- what do you expect me to do with this piece of information? You've told me now. You've told me in the middle of a training. That's a serious safeguarding issue in a large public authority. You are effectively breaching Article 5 rights of numerous people. You are opening the local authority up to potentially a huge liability in respect of of that. Um, I imagine after my face and my very clear edict during the training, I imagine they've now made a lot of community dolls applications. But that's that's just sort of one example of, of, of where it's gone wrong. And the other example, again, I think it's easier almost to take it from training. I, I was training uh, a few years ago now. I was training a local authority who had a separate hospital social work team to the community locality teams. 
And in the middle of the training, there was an argument. Because what was happening was the hospital social work team were discharging people from hospital into care homes, into nursing homes, into supported living settings. And they weren't doing any of the MCA stuff. And then they were expecting the locality team to do it post-discharge. And so I thought that was, again, quite a surprising thing to be happening so far into our experience of the act. If it was a sort of, you know, the first few months of the act, maybe I'd understand it. But we're talking months and months on. Mm. Years and years on, rather. Not months and months on. We're years and years on. And I think some, some of that is, one, the first example, how brazen that is, is almost yeah. impressive, isn't it? Um, yeah. To say it's someone being, like me as well. <laughs> whilst being utterly terrible, how brazen... Yeah. You've got to admire how brazen they've been. No, we don't bother with people's Article 5 rights. Um, I think that the, the second example, I think most people, most practitioners will know that the Mental Capacity Act is about supporting individuals to make their own decisions, mm. not supporting people after the decision's already been made. Mm. So what concerns me and kind of leads on to my last point is around why we aren't challenging that. Why practitioners, you know, I was always taught to challenge people. When I worked at Rampton, it was a badge of honor that the consultant psychiatrist hated me. I got moved <laughs> I got moved from the personality disorder service to the DSPD service. And one of the nurses who I knew well in the service said, everyone's terrified about you coming over. And I said, rightly so. But if they're good and they, and they uphold people's rights and they're completing process around MCA and safeguarding, there's nothing to fear. If they're doing their job, there is nothing to fear from me. So in mm. cases like that, if I was in that hospital discharge team, I'd be saying, I'm not discharging people without completing the relevant assessments without completing the metal capacity assessments without completing the best interest decisions i'm not doing it that's got to be right i've had scenarios before where i've sat in conferences with clients where i've seen different levels of of people in the social work team challenging each other and it's always interesting because one of the things i've noticed is that the challenge isn't always from the bottom up sometimes the challenge is from the top down and i think there's sometimes perhaps some senior managers and statutory services get maligned for saying that they don't, you know, they don't challenge their staff in respect to safeguarding issues. I actually think they do. Uh, obviously, when these safeguarding cases go wrong, people look to the senior managers, but, but it has to be right that there has to be a sort of collective willingness to challenge people, doesn't there? I think most certainly. And I think I, I can't speak for anyone else's training, but a big part of my training was that challenge. So when I worked mm. as an advocate, so I worked as an advocate when I first qualified um, for, for a bit. And even after that, I was always built to challenge people regardless of their role. I don't care whether you're a consultant psychiatrist with a God complex who talks mm. down to me. I will challenge you even if I'm sweat dripping off me and it makes me anxious because I want what's best for that yeah. person. Um, and we were taught to do that. Um, I don't think every profession is. So, you know, I could go on about the medical model and the social model, you know, and, mm. and the kind of the hierarchy that exists within the medical model and how that often prevents people from challenging, you know, nurses feeling like they have to accept the opinion of a doctor, for example. I certainly don't feel like that. Doctors often get it wrong. Social workers do as well. We all do. But mm. they're not, you know, no one is above challenge. Um, and I think we need to get better at that certainly um but but i think it's it's terribly difficult sometimes you know people are being bullied at work they're yeah they're experiencing real tough times in terms of being able to challenge people more senior than them but i think we've got to try and instill that confidence in people as part of the safeguarding processes so 
making safeguarding personal, a, a better grip of the Mental Capacity Act, a willing to increase your own legal literacy in order to stop overstepping statutory services powers and professional challenge and also professional curiosity from what Mark said today. So thanks for that, Mark. That was incredibly interesting. And for those listeners out there, I'd ask you, what are your five common mistakes in safeguarding adults? And whether or not those five common mistakes in safeguarding adults would also apply the same to children? Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to know more about us, visit 39essex.com. If you want to work with Mark, then connect with him on LinkedIn or email adultsocialworkpartnerships at outlook.com. If you want to connect with us on socials, then you can add me, Ian Brownhill, on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at, at safe underscore cast, and you can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. Join us next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.